most of you know, um, I fractured my radius of my left arm in early February. I will not go into the details of how I did that. Uh, just let me say it was not pursuing anything highly athletic. But I had to have a cast put on. Now, I have never had a cast. As much as I've had every part of my body x-rayed, thinking I broke something, I have never had a fracture. But I fractured my wrist. And so for five weeks, I had my arm immobilized. So I literally couldn't move it. And it got x-rayed and x-rayed and x-rayed. And then they took the cast off. And the bone was completely healed. The doctor was really proud of me. He said I'd been really good and taking care of it. But I couldn't move it. it. I couldn't move it because I hadn't used it for five weeks. And it really, really hurt. And so now I'm in therapy trying to get the muscles and everything around that wrist so that I have full mobility. I don't know that if it's really the accurate term, but that whole idea is what's called atrophy, where you might have an organ or a muscle or something that from lack of use wastes away or progressively declines or the development is arrested. So you heard the gospel story. It made me think of that gospel story as I was going through this therapy to try and reverse the effects of my not using my wrists for weeks and weeks at a time. And you notice that called the title of the sermon, Do You Want to Be Made Whole, Not Do You Want to Be Healed, or Do You Want to Be Made Well? Because you see, the reality is, I'm healed, I'm well, but I'm not whole. And that's what I'm trying to get to, and it made me think of this miracle that we heard in the Gospel of John. But we, before we go back to that miracle and what it says to me today, I want to talk about the context of it. It's in the Gospel of John. Remember, the Gospel of John was written last, around 100 CE, long after Christ had lived on the earth. And there was an actual real Christian community by then. They called it Christian, and they were more and more separated from the rest of the world. Now, this man that we talk about in the miracle, how many years had he been afflicted? 38 years. And Jesus, you notice, had an insight into this man, just like we see Jesus having an insight into others that he has encountered in the Gospel of John, like Nathaniel and the Samaritan woman. And the man, when Jesus says, do you want to be made well? He interprets that question through his own assumptions and his own beliefs. And so the only way he can respond is by bemoaning his predicament. But how does Jesus respond to him? 
he responds to the man's complaint that, well, you know, yada, 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 I, I can't do anything about it, with three imperatives. Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And he did, and he walked away. I'm not even going to begin to question the power of Christ to heal like that. End of story. Happened. But let's go beyond these verses so that you have a context of why that miracle was put in John where it was. Because if you just look at the miracle by itself, you got a lot of questions. You want to go 38 years? Well, didn't anybody help him? And well, you know, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. If you go on the verses that follow, the first sentence after that says that this took place on the Sabbath. This is Jerusalem, surrounded with Jews. This kind of healing. Remember how many times Jesus was criticized for doing that? Why are you doing this kind of thing on the Sabbath? That's a huge violation in Jesus' time and still in the time of John to do anything that smacked of work on the Sabbath. Because remember, they had very strict laws and practices, circumcision, food laws, Sabbath observance. That was the cornerstone of their faith. And so for Jesus to challenge that and say, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk, was revolutionary. That was what the point of putting the miracle there was to say, oh, yes, I can. It is the Sabbath, and yes, I'm going to heal. The pools that are referenced in this story, Bethsaida, really are outside of what used to be called the sheep gate. And that's because they used to bring the sheep in through that gate in the walled city of Jerusalem into the temple for sacrifice. I have stood right at those pools. They're huge. They're deep. And so that you know dozens and dozens of people must have been able to fit in them. I, can, I try and envision what it must have been like, the noise and the hustle and the bustle of people, the blind and the lame and the paralyzed around those pools and reservoirs. I don't know if they're talking to each other, if they're helping each other, or they're waiting for that angel that appears and stirs up the water. But it's an enormous area. One of the most famous New Testament scholars, Raymond Brown, he believes that this man, who had been there 38 years, that his limbs had atrophied, just like my wrist started doing. And, okay, I, I can accept that, but I still have a lot of questions. And the questions I have are about hopelessness and despair and community or the lack thereof. Think about this scene again. 
all of these people, many of whom are afflicted physically, goodness knows what emotional and spiritual disabilities they might have had that became as a result of what they were suffering physically. But there's lots of people there, and this man has to stay there like 38 years. Can you imagine the hopelessness that he must have felt? Had he asked people to help him and they had refused? Had they, after the years, just kind of gotten used to seeing him and thought, oh, there's that crazy guy laying there on that mat year after year after year? You know that happens. We do that. We don't know if there was any correlation between why the man couldn't move and his behavior. We don't know. But we understand what it means to feel the way he felt, don't we? To feel that hopeless. To feel that lost. Emotionally, physically, spiritually. Because it doesn't just have to be a wrist that atrophies. I think our hearts can waste away. I think our spirits can waste away. I think our souls can waste away. Out of all the things that happen to us in life, and we cease to have adequate nourishment. And sometimes it's about choices we make. I know that. Sometimes the atrophy, the wasting away, is because we've made bad choices. And either things we say, things we do, jobs we take, jobs we leave. We all know that. And like the man who'd been there 38 years, my guess is sometimes when we're faced with that kind of hopelessness, where we feel absolutely paralyzed to do anything to help ourselves, we have some of the same excuses he might have innocently. Well, no one has helped lift me to put me in the water. No one has called to see how I'm doing. No one has noticed that I haven't been in church for six weeks. Nobody has noticed that I'm not happy. What can I do? I'm powerless to change this. So what are we to do? What are we to do as individuals to keep ourselves from this atrophying? And what are we to do as individuals to ensure that the people we love and care about don't do that? You know, it's hard. You know, we all get excited and we all get in a, in a mood and we'll start helping and, and, and then it gets old. You know, a little time goes on and we go back to our regular life and we don't notice the paralyzed man on the mat anymore. Well, we helped a couple times. We called a couple times. We saw how they were a couple times. Same thing might happen to us. Well... They called me a couple times, and then they stopped. 
they said hi to me a couple times and invited me, and then they stopped. But it asks, it begs the question, do you really believe that this man simply refused to ask for help and allowed himself to become atrophied year after year after year? I believe sometimes we feel so helpless and so powerless that we don't have the energy, the imagination, or the desire to know how to make ourselves whole. We are lost to know what to do. And I think sometimes we lack the energy and the desire and the imagination to know how to help the person whose heart and soul has atrophied as well. You know, I was lucky. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I have Medicare. <laughs> and it paid everything. I got a good supplement, pays 100% co-pays and deductibles. So it paid, you know, to go to the risk clinic, and it paid for the x-rays, it paid for the PT, OT. I'm good. But what if I had fractured my wrist and I didn't have the resources? I know it sounds odd, but it would have cost several thousand dollars. I'm like stunned when I get my EOBs from Medicare of what they've charged for things. Would that mean that if I hadn't had Medicare that I didn't want to be made whole? I just would have been powerless and hopeless to know what to do. One of my closest friends, her, her young daughter fractured her wrist. And they didn't tell her, oh, by the way, you need to do certain things after the fracture heals in order to make sure that you regain mobility. I guess they figured she's 14, she'll figure it out. You know, I'm the old woman, and I have more mobility in my wrist than she does because someone helped me. Someone said, Lynette, this is what you need to do. We all have a part, don't we? It's not just about Christ coming down and doing everything. And it's not just about us saying, I got this. It's about the power of God and you and I doing this together. That's how life works. That's how we stay out of the hopelessness that can hit us emotionally, spiritually, physically. And a part of it is having the imagination to know just how can we help. I love 60 Minutes. It's on, on Sunday nights. I don't usually watch it live. I actually watch it on my iPad in bed, and uh, usually on Monday nights. 
and I watched this show uh, from a couple Sundays ago uh, about Blue Star and Gold Star Mothers. Now, Gold Star Mothers, it started in World War II, and um, it would be a flag that you hung in your window if you lost someone in the war. Powerful in World War II. We lost over 350,000 servicemen in World War II, about 60,000 civilians. So there was a lot of gold stars. And then there's blue stars if you have a son or a daughter that has served or is serving in the military. Well, since 9-11, we've lost about 6,000-some people, young men and women in service. But, you know, it's a different world today, isn't it? We don't pay as much attention to it as we did during World War II. And so these mothers and fathers, these gold star mothers and fathers, feel atrophied. They feel paralyzed and as if they've wasted away, as if their loss is invisible and has gone on and no one notices. So in San Francisco, a group of blue star mothers who they will say usually don't want anything to do with gold star mothers because gold star mothers are their worst nightmare. I've got a son or daughter that's serving in the military. I don't want to deal with the fact that you've lost a son or daughter. But that's not how these blue star mothers chose to act. They put together this incredible event that's now in about its 11th or 12th year where they rent this hotel and in this big um, room, the mothers and fathers, the gold star mothers and fathers come in and set a table that is displayed with memorabilia about the son or daughter that they lost. And the public, the other people come in and they get a chance to tell the story of their son or daughter that has been lost to them over and over again. That's using the energy and the imagination to help people whose souls have atrophied because these sons and daughters are still alive to them. They have not been forgotten. But it took both of them, didn't it? It took the gold star mothers and fathers to say yes and the blue star mothers to ask. I recently read a fun little novel that's actually by a Houston author by the name of Catherine Center, and she tells the story of a young divorced woman who wanted to change her life, and so she signs up for a a wilderness survival course in Wyoming. And needless to say, it's, it's quite an adventure. Here's how she ends the book. She said, life will hand each one of us a fair share of despair and loss and suffering, and then some. That's certain. Good things are easy to overlook, but that doesn't make them any less there. There's heartbreak to come and sadness and trouble, but no matter what, we'll face every hard thing better together than we would apart. Every single one. You know, I love some of the songs we're singing. 
I love what they say, how they empower us. We're going to sing a closing uh, hymn today called This is a Day of New Beginnings. And you know, I recently read an article by Bono who was criticizing Christian music and saying it's, it's too, you know, it's like four words repeated and it's, you know, it doesn't tell the truth. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a point. But that's not always true. Let me read to you the words you're going to sing in this closing hymn and think about the hearts and souls you know, maybe your own, that are atrophied, that need the power of God and the power of you and the power of each other. This is a day of new beginnings. Time to remember and move on. Time to believe that what love is bringing, laying to rest the pain that's gone. For by the life and death of Jesus, God's mighty spirit, now as then, can make for us a world of difference as faith and hope are born again. Then let us with spirits daring step from the past and leave behind our disappointment, guilt, and grieving, seeking new paths and sure to find. Christ is alive and goes before us to show and share what love can do. This is a day of new beginnings. Our God is making all things new. Pray with me. God of grace and mercy, we give you thanks for the miracles of Christ, for the healing power that is present. And we give thanks, dear God, for each other and ourselves and the power that we have to help make ourselves and each other whole. Give us the grace and strength and power to see beyond ourselves. Give us the courage to ask for help. Give us a presence to offer it. We pray, dear God, in your many names. Amen.